yesterday I was looking out our kitchen window. I'd come back from men's prayer, and uh, in our kitchen window there's a, a, a bay window going out the back. And as I was standing there looking out that window, I noticed a dove that was flying down into a, um, an area in the backyard that it sort of sticks and limbs and so forth from a, a brush pile I'd done. She, uh, this dove was flying in there and picking up things and flying them back. And what caught my attention was, as I was standing there and I was musing and thinking, the dove comes down, gets a load and goes back. And I didn't think a lot about that. And then I thought, you know, uh, that's interesting. And then about that time I see this dove come darting out of this back tree and flying back down there and got some more and went right back. I said, that's a second load. And then I spoke to my wife and said, this dove is really busy about this nest thing. You know, about that time here she comes again, got another load and went right back. And then she came a fourth time and I thought, how many loads she going to get? So I just, I got busy, got other things I had to do, couldn't sit there and watch a dove build a nest. So I uh, went about my activities. And so later in the day I was out and noticed that that dove was still flying. But I went to the tree where it was, and I just want to clear up a misconception that has been, I'm sure, permeated the earth. That uh, it's the, the, the female doves that build the nest. The female was sitting on the nest. You know the guy's beating his brains out to build that thing? It was the male. And I pointed this out to my wife, and she has accepted this reality. So I just wanted to clear that up. If you thought it was just the female dove that just does all this work and builds this nest, that's not true. This dove, this female dove is sitting out there in my tree just pretty as you please, and this male dove is beating his brains out trying to build a nest around her. I just want to clear that up. I just feel better getting these kind of things cleared up, you know, so we men get our due here, you know, if you would. Let me encourage you to be back for the evening service. Uh, Brother McCallum will be here sharing with you, and I hope you'll come. Bring your Bible along, and uh, this evening service, if you have some folks at your house, invite them to come along with you 6 o'clock for the evening service tonight, if you would. Now to your text, Romans chapter 8, verse number 35. Paul writes, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. These uh, 39 verses that are in chapter 8, I mentioned this Wednesday night, that um, counting today's message, this will be... 23 sermons preached from 39 verses in chapter 8. And it doesn't take a genius to figure that out. That's almost a half a year of preaching just from these 39 verses. And uh, it's not by accident, it's by design, because there is no chapter in your Bible that lends itself more to the security of the believer than this chapter 8. And I would urge you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you, uh, you spend much time in this chapter 8 reading and rereading and thinking and meditating on these verses because if you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, these verses will give you the anchor points, the benchmarks for your faith and uh, ought be a great encouragement to you as you understand them. With that said, I think of when I come to the latter part here in the last verses, today's text, verse 37, 38, 39, I think of what Paul wrote over in 1 Corinthians chapter number 1 and verse number 25. He wrote there, the foolishness of God 
is wiser than man. And uh, what's interesting about that is that I think about our text, I think about that because several things. One, there are some churches today, and I know you've heard of them, that they are uh, not interested in being identified with the foolishness of God. And so what they've done is they have toned down both their preaching of the gospel and their practicing of the Christian faith. And they've done it because they don't want to have this image. Uh, my wife copied off a, a letter last night from a, an evangelist who travels the country and, and preaches in various churches as he does. And in this article, it, it made very clear that some churches are very conscious of having the wrong image, this image of being old-fashioned, or this image of, of somehow being in a, in a different era and concerning the preaching of truth. And, and their ideal that, that truth evidently changes, and they, they want to be up-to-date. And so consequently, it's a, it's a real concern. They don't want to be seen as preaching or holding to the foolishness of God, as the Scriptures would say. And some have gone so far as to completely, totally stop preaching the gospel altogether as for one who said because it doesn't seem to be the intellectual thing to do intellectual thing to do get that they think the gospel is somehow not intellectual and so since it's not intellectual they don't have anything to do with it and this particular case with this particular pastor he's just not going to preach the gospel anymore because it's not the intelligent thing to do you forgive me but it's the smartest thing anybody ever did to embrace it and believe it Trust the Lord Jesus Christ of which the gospel centers. I say to you, we remember, and you must remember, that you never give in to the fact that the gospel of God is contrary to this dead and dying world's wisdom at every single point. I mean by that, first off, it originates from a different source. Secondly, it absolutely follows a different course. And thirdly, it always arrives at a different conclusion always different source different course and a different conclusion no matter what the world's wisdom says the gospel does not run parallel with it it runs contrary to it and don't forget that the humanistic world talks about education to improve man's standing or his relationship before the holy God of heaven but God demands regeneration and he made it clear in John chapter 3 in dealing with Nicodemus you must be born again. It must. No ifs and buts. It's not just it's a good thing. It's the only thing to get you into a right relationship with God. You must be born again. You see, this man-centered world somehow has the idea that the natural man can be cultivated, refined, groomed, until he somehow will pass inspection when he stands before the someday judgment of God. The ideal is, is to improve upon him and get him to be better so that when God sees him, God will say, Okay, I think I'll let you in. You'll forgive me, but that's dreaming a deceptive dream. It'll never happen. The truth is, you must keep before you as I try to keep my, for my own heart that Nicodemus was just as lost as Barabbas. Nicodemus was just as lost as Barabbas. You see, sin is actually defined as missing the mark, and a miss is as much as a mile. So it doesn't matter how much you think you missed, if you missed, and we all have because we were born sinners, have depraved natures, the fact is we've missed. We're all on the same line, at the same level of being born into this world a sinner. Now, you may do things and get worse in your behavior of carrying out sinful behavior, but the fact is you all come in at the same level. We all did. 
It's interesting to me that this self-centered world scoffs at God's redemption with the ideal of being him being saved by one who would not save himself, though he could. In fact, I've heard it so that they ask with a smirk, who ever heard of living through somebody who died? They say with a grin, it sounds ridiculous to me to be blessed by one who himself was made a curse. And then they wonder out loud, who can make any sense of being justified by one who himself was condemned? And so on top of all that, our text today throws another wrinkle in their blanket. And that is to say, in this passage of Scripture, I entitled the message, what I believe the text teaches, we're a bunch of sheep that conquer. Sheep that conquer. Now, if you want to drive the pagans nuts, you just tell them we're a bunch of sheep that conquer. And that'll just about put them in the crazy house with everything else they've looked at of our faith and everything else they've understood, they just about think we've tipped over the edge. But may I tell you what they think is a contradiction? is simply a Bible paradox. And God loves to do that. My goodness, you look through the Scriptures and find all the paradoxes of Scripture. You see, we talk about sheep that conquer because back in verse 36, he said, As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We're counted as what? As what? sheep for what slaughter you see the assumption is that that's a given that's uh, that just went along with the territory when people place faith in the lord jesus christ the ideal it was not going to be a cakewalk and it was not going to be work on a playground it was going to be a battlefield and the consequences could be high the cost could be great in fact our lord did not put in fine print in the deal concerning come follow me and everything will be rosy he put in the contract very clearly he said take up your cross and follow me and if anybody knows anything about a cross, as I said last week, a cross represents death and dying and crucifixion and pain and sacrifice. So consequently, you must understand we're sheep, but we have a deal that the world does not understand and could not comprehend if you begin to explain it to them. And this text of Scripture brings that point out so admirably well. Call your attention to verse 35 again. We read these verses because they set the context. Verse 35, Romans 8, Who shall separate us from the love of God? So that's the question on the table. Who can separate us or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes through a whole series of questions or issues or circumstances, tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword. So verse 35, who can separate us? What can separate us from the love of God? He lists all these things, and the obvious answer is, it's a declared answer, it is absolutely nothing can do that. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God. Then he goes into verse 36. He quotes a verse of Scripture from the Old Testament. In the book of Psalm, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Now look at today's text, verse 37. Nay, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. Now please get a hold on this and get a hold on this good. First off, let me give a warning to those of you who know Christ. First off, no sinner should ever be tricked or deceived into believing that coming to Christ will make dead sure that he never faces any of the things written in verse 35. That's not what it says. That's not what it's talking about. It's not saying, hey, look, since you will not be separated from Christ, you don't have to worry about tribulation. You don't have to worry about persecution. You don't have to worry about any of these things that are listed in verse 35. They're not going to come your way because you're a Christian. You're God's child. You don't have to have... Uh, you'll forgive me, that's not what it's saying. 
That's not what it's saying. It's not saying that. And also, the first thing I do to you is to warn you. Don't trick sinners into saying that when you come to faith in Christ, everything is just going to be a, a boy. It's just going to be rosy. It's just going to work wonderful. It's just going to be beautiful. It may be all that, but it's probably going to be more internalized than externalized. You may, you may have more bad days than you do good, and there are people in this church who are already experiencing that. There are folks in this church who get up every day in great pain and difficulty and challenges. And I've spoken with people just this last week from this fellowship who talked about the toils, the difficulty, the challenges that, that face them every single day. And they'll not be able to change them. They're not going to be able to wave some kind of magic wand and all that's going to go away. And no matter if they, like Paul, were to get on their face before God and call out to him three times and ask God to remove this, this is not going to be removed. It's a part of life from here on in. You say, how can that be? Well, see, the passage does not say, whoever trusts Christ as Savior shall be separated from all these things that are bad. It says these things can't separate you from Him. These things can't separate you from Him. But it doesn't say here that you're always just going to have a party. That's not what it says. So the first thing you need to understand in this text is God does not, He never has kept back difficulties life challenges from his children and he doesn't keep them back for one big monstrous reason for with a simple fact that you and I need them to be spiritually our strongest and he's going to send them so they're going to come your way and you can just begin to pack your bag now to face them because they're going to come let me take you back he warned us of this way back when but look over to chapter 5 of Romans back at chapter 5 and verse number 3 Chapter 5, verse number 3, Paul wrote, and he said, And not only so, but we glory, we what? We glory. We glory in tribulations also. How can we do such a crazy thing? Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. And patience, experience, and experience, hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. That's what Romans 5, verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 have said. You're not going to get away from trouble. And trouble is not going to somehow be uh, put in a back burner because you're now a Christian. The fact of the matter is, since you are a Christian, the things on the back burner are going to be brought to the front burner. And God's going to use these things in your life to mold you and make you into what He wants you to be. And to make the ultimate goal that He had for you that we've already covered back in chapter 8 earlier. Here's something else. That's why Romans chapter 8 fits the context of this whole idea. For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. The point made is that all these things are not going to be somehow evaporated because we come to faith in Christ. And even if you grew spiritually stronger than anybody else, they assure you these would be on the agenda, on the map, on the calendar for you to face. So it's not a matter of trying to avoid them, and it's not a matter of trying to somehow grow so spiritual you don't need them. The fact of the matter is they're going to come to your life. And the secret is, is to understand, one, your security. That's what Romans 8 is all about, is being secure in Christ so you don't worry about them. There's a second thing. Because God uses all these things, by the way, the devil and the world throw at us. Many of these things is what they threw at us. Some of the tribulation is what they threw at us. Some of the distresses are the things they threw at us. Some of the persecutions are the things they throw at us. The fact of the matter is the devil, the world, throw these things at us to hinder us, to harm us, to stop us, as it were, from meeting God's goal. But what his point is, he turns them around. 
And that's an important point here. Remember the verse, verse 37, we're more than conquerors. We're more than conquerors. So God turns this thing around. If you're more than a conqueror, you're somebody who has the circumstances turned around. And so God turns these things around. And whereas the devil wants to harm us and to hinder us and to stop us, God turns them around and God uses them for our good. That's what Romans 8, 28 says. We know that all these things work together for good. You mean, you mean even when the devil throws... Yes, he uses that for good. God turns it around. When the world throws something at us to, to trip... Yes, God turns it around. That's what he's saying. And consequently from that, what you don't want to forget here is what's the ultimate goal. And so many, I think, of us as believers do forget that. You see back over in Romans 8 and verse number 29. That's what, God, what God's goal is. Verse number 29, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, now watch it, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that we might be the firstborn among many brethren. It really breaks down to two-stage goal, an ultimate goal. is one, for every believer to be conformed to the likeness, the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's first goal for you. Whatever else God accomplishes in your life, that's the one thing that God is working toward and what He's allowing to come into your life. That's what His purpose is. The second thing is that Christ would have the preeminence in your life. He'd have first place in your life. That's the two goals. So everything that comes your way that God allows into your life, He is allowing with the idea that one, you're going to become like His Son, and number two, you're going to give His Son first place. So if you miss what the goal is, getting there is going to be trouble. I mean, you're, you're not going to be a happy camper if you miss the goal. If you don't understand where we're headed, getting there is going to be bad news. Uh, I, I was privileged the other day, highly privileged, uh, to take my son Scott and Steve out. They were Steve came up, and Scott and I and Andrew went out to breakfast, and, uh, and uh, I, I was taking them to Cracker Barrel on that morning, and, and we were driving down US 31, and uh, Andrew said something to effect of, uh, in essence, I don't know if this is exact translation. Scott would have heard it, and he knows it. The idea was, do you have to go this far for breakfast? You know, do you have to go this far for breakfast? I mean, isn't there a place closer where we could just stop in and eat breakfast and be on our way? Now, how many times have you been traveling? Your kids ask you, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? That's sort of the way I felt. Here, I, I was excited about getting to eat breakfast with the boys, and, and Andrew's saying, isn't it closer? Can't we get here somewhere closer? Let me say something. I, I'm a Christian. I sometimes say that to God. Isn't there a closer way to get to where you want me to be than to go through all this? Are you sure we have to go through all this? It's as if God speaks back and says, yes, this is the only way to get you from here to there and get you there the way I want you to be. Let me take you to a, a, an unusual passage that I would just guess you don't read often. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and look, if you would, at verse 32. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and look at verse number 32, Hebrews eleven thirty-two. 32, passage of scripture that very honestly, it would probably do you good to read every week, just this short passage, not that you couldn't read all the whole chapter and it'd be good for us, but this passage, Hebrews 11, verse 32, and what shall I say more or more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, and of Samson, and of Jephthah, of David also, and Samuel, and of the prophets. Now watch out verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, 
wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again, and others were tortured not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now notice, if you would, a change. That's the first half of the text. And then it says, as if to say, however, there were some others. And the others had trials of cruel mockings and of scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder. Were tempted. Were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented. And that is if God, to be gracious, he records under inspiration, he says, of whom the world was not worthy. And they wandered in deserts and in the mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. What I want to say from the passage is, and what you need to read the passage often is, is to understand this. Good people do not always win. Good people do not always win. Let me put it to you in a more theological sense. Saved people do not always win. Saved people don't always win. These, I'm sure these folks love the Lord as much, if not more, than anybody in this room did. The first half of the group, it would appear, and I think we could rightly say, they won some. They seemed to win. Verses 33 down and 32 down, it seems like that group won and, and had some temporary victories and some encouragement. And, and, and they had things that happened. They conquered and they, they had their dead raised, raised and restored. They, they seemed to have some victory there. Boy, you read that second half, it seemed like the world came apart. But the truth of the matter is, these are all lumped together in Hebrews chapter 11. And this is what we call the chapter of faith or the hall of faith. And these are people who served God, loved God with all their heart, and went through a whole lot of stuff that was not pleasant, was not easy. But there's nobody in this room would dare say for a half a heartbeat that God loved any of these people less than he loves you or me who had none of these things happen to us. You see, this passage of Scripture is is capstoned, as it were, with our Lord's statement in the end at verse number 38. And I love what he says. Of whom the world was not worthy. That's how God sees his people. That's how God looks down from heaven upon people on this earth who will really pay the price, so to speak, to live continuously, openly, outwardly, stand up for the Lord Jesus Christ when it's easier to sit down, to speak up for Christ when it's easier to keep your mouth shut. When God looks down from heaven and sees all the persecution, the distress, the burden, all the complications that standing for him brings, he looks down and says, the world in which they're working is not worthy of them. They deserve a better place. And in essence, God says, and they're going to get it. One day, I'm going to bring them home, and they don't have to put up with any of this anymore. So let me urge you and encourage you that wherever you are and place of responsibility, your business, work, your job, your casual social contacts. It'd be worth to put up with a little bit of challenge now and a little bit of persecution now to enjoy the blessings of God and especially a good word from Him. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let me take you to another passage. Look, if you would, at Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. 
at verse number 29 in Matthew chapter 10, Matthew writes, he says, Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. Verse 30, But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Then he says, Fear ye not, therefore, ye are more are of more value than many sparrows. His point in this particular context is, if God knows when sparrows fall, and he does, then be assured that he also knows when trouble falls on you. When trouble comes your way, when something comes your way that grieves and burdens your heart, he says, don't, don't doubt for a second that God knows that. I read in my devotional time this week a cross-reference of a verse. I'm in the Old Testament, but I was reading across a verse text, and I ran across the passage where uh, I think it was Stephen who was speaking and talking about his history of Israel. And in the context that he was talking about the, the persecution that Israel had down in Egypt and, and how that uh, God heard them. And then it says, and God saw. God saw. Well, God up in heaven, looking down on Israel down there in Egypt and all the burden they were carrying, and God heard their cry. God heard their prayer. God heard their asking Him to intervene in their behalf. God heard that. But what's exciting is that God looks down and He saw it. And the Bible says God saw it. God saw it. So I can assure you today that wherever you are and, and whatever is going on in your life, that God not only hears your cries and your concerns and your prayers of, of help, but He also sees. He also sees what's going on. And it's when he sees, as it were, with the Israelites that he interceded and he undertook. Look, if you would, back to Romans chapter 8, verse number 37 says, Nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him that loved us. What to ask you to focus your attention on that phrase, more than conquerors. I remind you that uh, conquest always presupposes a contest. You can't talk about victory unless you're talking about a battle. And the, ver the word here, the Greek word, Hyperniakeo is the word that's translated in our English Bibles for more than conquerors. It's interesting because that word is made up of two Greek words. You put two Greek words together to come up with that. The first part of the Greek word is, is hyper. And that word is the word from which we get our word hyper. It simply means in the place of or over and above or more than. By the way, we also get our word super from this word. The second part of this Greek word is the word nikeo. It means to overcome, to conquer. You know, the uh, athletic shoe people call Nike. That word Nike is a Greek word. It means victory. It means overcomer. It means someone who conquers. So you put these two Greek words together and you come up with a word, super conquer. And that's not the, really what the word is in, in Paul's writing here in Romans chapter 8 in verse number 37. We are more than conquerors. Really is. We're super conquerors. That's interesting because he comes off of a verse, verse 36, he just quotes the psalm passage when he says, we are accounted as sheep to the slaughter, nay, in all these things we're more than conquerors. We're super conquerors. Wait a minute, Paul. You're, you just told us that we're like sheep that have been led, planned for slaughter. Then you come back and say, however, please understand, nay, you're more than conquerors. And you're more than conquerors over these things that are recorded back up here in verse 35. You're more than conquerors through all these things. What's the, what's the deal here? Let me explain the deal, and it's a good deal. First off, if you're a conqueror, you have an enemy. And the ideal of that conqueror is someone who goes out and defeats his enemy. You follow me? That's what a conqueror is. You have enemies, you're a conqueror. You go out, you defeat the enemy, and you're the conqueror over the enemy. Now get to, uh, someone who's a more than a conqueror. He goes out, he has enemies, but he goes out and conquers his enemies in this fact that his enemies actually help him toward the goal that he had when he started fighting the battle. 
For we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. Everything that the devil throws at you is, as it were, an enemy of the purpose of God. When you live for, serve the Lord, the ideal is that God then gives you the ability to turn the program around. A conqueror is someone who turns the things around. He's, gonna, he's got to go into battle, but instead of him being defeated, he's going to win. And so the whole process is turned around. He wins victoriously, but in the end, the guys who are the enemies that he's conquered help him toward his goal of fulfilling God's purpose. And that's exactly what it means in this context in Romans chapter 8. What it is is what you've heard before. God makes stepping stones out of stumbling blocks for His people to meet their goal. That's exactly what it means. He actually turns these things around. By the way, don't get a big head and don't think you ought to boast because look at the latter part of verse 37. Nay, and all these things were more than conquerors through Him that loved us. It's not your ingenuity, not your intelligence and your wisdom and your shrewdness to how to operate that you made this happen. That's not it at all. We're more than conquerors through Him that loved us. And He's the one that made this happen. So it's not of our own making. It's not of my smartness and, and boy, didn't I play that smart. Boy, I'm proud of myself how I handle that. No, that's not what it is. It's understanding He did it and you're just, as it were, along for the ride if you're cooperating with it. He does it. And it's through Him that loved us. Then look at verses 38 and 39. In verse 38, He says, For, for I am persuaded, by the way, I love that. Uh, Paul wrote that several times. He wrote it in, in Philippians, you know, I'm for persuaded. But here he comes back and says, For I am persuaded. By the way, if you've come through 37 verses of this chapter and you're not persuaded that you're securing Christ, nothing is going to persuade you. And the fact of the matter is, Paul says, I am persuaded. There are some things I am convinced. And the Greek word carries that idea. I am absolutely in deep conviction about this. You, by the way, you ought to have deep convictions. You know, when somebody shows up at your door and begins to spill a bunch of stuff or somebody hands you a book and you start reading it and it begins to make you question some of the very solid Bible truths of God's Word, it ought not shake your, your tower. Strong conviction would laugh at it and say, yeah, I know what the Bible says and that's not going to shake my faith. You know, when, uh, when the, the cults could not make it were it not for, forgive me, ignorant Baptists. They just wouldn't have anybody to pull on. But we don't know our truth. We don't know it the way we should know it. Our, our children don't go and grow up knowing how to defend their faith. When we get out in the world, they make pretzels of us. And the fact of the matter is, that ought not so to be. But the reason it is, is because, very obviously, we don't take that teaching as a high priority. That's not a high priority for the general Christian, see. And it should be. It should be. Let me tell you what, you'd have a hard time making a pretzel out of a, of, of a Hebrew kid. You know, you, you just dare take a Hebrew kid who's every day after school he goes down to the Hebrew class and he takes his Hebrew and he, and he learns from the priests and so forth. And by the way, I'm not asking you to bring your kids by here every afternoon either. But the fact is, you sit down there and that guy taught them the history and then the language. And then you take that kid out and you just say one bad word about Moses and let me see what you do with him, see? I mean, they started early being ingrained with a, their historical connection and then their cultural connection and then on top of all that, their relationship to God. Though it may not have been everything and what was not what it ought been as we know in the life of the Apostle Paul. The fact is, they were grounded in that kind of culture. We don't do that. Our culture ought to be the Christian faith. But we've not allowed it to be so. Our culture tends to be whatever the going thing is right now. 
That's not a good thing. And that's therefore no surprise. We don't have convictions. Most Christians don't have convictions. And I don't, you know, I don't go the route of what you'd die for and what you wouldn't, but I do believe a conviction ought to be something that you absolutely hold on to tenaciously, that you wouldn't give ground on. It wouldn't be something that could make you doubt and wonder every time you hear somebody preach. You ought not be able to listen to some guy on radio or television and then begin to question things that you have been taught from God's Word. If you had convictions, you wouldn't. It wouldn't bother you. It wouldn't have any impact on you at all because you know where your anchor is and you know it holds. And that's what Paul is saying in using this word in this context. He says, for I am persuaded. I, he's not vacillating. Some people will change their position with every sermon they hear. And Paul says, I'm not. You know, I know the truth and I'm convinced of it and I'm hanging tough to it. Something else to be noted here. When he comes to this in verse number 38, I am persuaded that neither. And then he goes into this whole list. Let me quickly go through them with you. I'll make very light comments so it's not an involved thing, but listen carefully as we close. First off, he is still saying in verse 38, For I am persuaded that one neither death. Death is, of course, the last enemy, the Bible says. And don't forget, death is the penalty for sin. Uh, I've repeated this so much early on, I re am reluctant to mention it now, but I was uh, speaking uh, this last week in a, in a Christian school. I went down and uh, spoke at... Terre Haute Christian School for Stephen. He asked me to come down to finish up their year and speak in their chapel, and I did. And there was a young man standing there, and, and he spoke to me and made a comment about the message, and I hit him, and after I hit him, then we talked to him. No, I'm just kidding. But anyway, the fact is, uh, he asked me a question, and I began to comment, and I said, you know, since everybody's a sinner, and he sort of looked at me a little funny, and, and I said something to the effects of, uh, you know, what Romans 5.12 says, and he said, what's it say? And I said, well, it, it indicates, uh, you know, that all have sinned and we're all sinners because of Adam's sin. And I said, in the context, it's, it's, we, it goes all the way back to Adam. He said, uh, yeah, I've heard that. And I'm saying to myself, you just heard that? That's not conviction of heart that, that, you know, Adam sinned and therefore sin passed upon all men for that all have sinned. You see, my point is... That's the kind of thing it ought to be. It ought to be conviction. It's not that well, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that as a faint truth. That is no faint truth. That's a foundation upon which everything you and I believe holds and hangs and stands. Why every person who dies, dies. That's why every baby that's born that dies, dies. is because of sin and because Adam sinned. And sin was passed upon all men for that all sin likewise. But we don't have that as a conviction. But the fact of the matter is, death is a penalty for sin. That means it separates. That's why Paul brings it up here. He says, death's not going to separate you from God. Though death in itself is a penalty for sin, and as a penalty for sin, it separates people. But he says, I want you to understand that death cannot separate you from a love of God. What's interesting, we're more than conquerors, right? Then if that's true, then death somehow ought to help us. It does. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death becomes a transport service for God's people. It doesn't take us from Him. It takes us to Him. And that's why Paul brings it up here. Death is not an enemy. It may have been an enemy before, and it is an enemy in the sense that it, it separates, but it can't separate God's people. It literally brings us together. My parents are in heaven. I look forward with anticipation to sitting down with my father again. I really do. I don't know what we get to talk about. I don't know if there's any kind of restrictions in heaven or not. Restrictions are not bad. They're good. So I don't know if God's got some restrictions. Say, now, look, I don't want any politics talked up here. I don't, want any, I don't know what God's going to allow me to talk about. I do know this. I'll get to talk with my father. 
And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to that. And the fact of the matter is, there's only one way I'm going to get there. One way to either be transported, translated, or I'm going to die and be resurrected. But I'm going to get there. And therefore, death is not something I need to fear and something I need to run from. I need to understand God has made me more than conquerors, even of death, and therefore has been turned around and is going to use it to my good. Death is going to get me to my heavenly Father and my earthly Father who's there. The second thing he says is, not only is he persuaded that neither death, but he says life. And he does put them in couplets to a point. There's one that's out of the couplet when you get to angels, principalities, and power. But the others are in twos and couplets. Here it is, the other side of, of death, which is life. Let me let you in on a secret, and a secret you really already know, but let me just remind you of it. And that is this, that life can be more dangerous than death. Did you know that? Did you know that life can be more dangerous than death to you who know the Lord in putting things between you and your relationship with the Lord? Did you know that? You can put a thousand things between you and the Lord in this life because you'll get so busy doing good things that you'll forget the best thing. And it can literally be worse than death. If I were to ask you this morning, now how many of you this week took time out of your busy, busy, busy schedules to get along with God and read some from His Word and call upon His name in prayer every single day, no exceptions, given no excuses think for a moment could you stand to your feet and say yes I did I did boy I loved every minute had a great time with God every day reading his word bearing my heart bearing my burdens I did it every single day there may not be merit in consistency but the scriptures are very clear as God's Indian, God in his word reveals to me about the early apostles disciples that daily and in the temple and in house to house daily they did the teaching of the word well, surely if they did the teaching every day and daily, then God expects us every day reading it, meditating on it, sitting under it so it influences our thinking and our minds are saturated with the way God thinks. Surely that's what He wants. You'll forgive me, but once every three or four days or whenever you can remember to pick your Bible up is not the way it ought to work. And forgetting your Bible here at church won't help you at home unless you've got a dozen like I do. I say to you that it's important, yea, verily. It's more than important. It's essential that you make sure that every single day of your life that you spend time in God's Word and on your face before God in prayer. There's a third thing, and he says, nor angels. Since the next word that's going to come up is going to be principalities, I would take it interpreting the Scriptures here that he's talking about good angels, someone who can do you good. And so I'm interpreting it that way in this context. And what I would say to you is that good angels were ordained and created by God to serve those people who are heirs of salvation. Hebrews says so. So consequently, I believe instead of separating us, good angels actually help us in our relationship of drawing nigh to God. Then he uses in, in the verse, nor principalities. I believe this refers to evil beings, angels, demons, whatever. And he's saying that even the reigning order of the evil world, which is all around us, even these, even these cannot separate you from the love of Christ. Then he uses the word nor powers. In the New Testament, as I understand it, the verses that I checked and ran, when you come to a plurality of this word, what you're talking about is mighty deeds, evil deeds in most cases, evil influences or evil beings doing them. What he's saying is, even evil beings doing evil things cannot 
keep you or separate you from the love of God. You don't have to worry about, um, shall we say, curses or, or things that can be, quote, put on people. You don't have to worry about that because those things can't separate you from the love of God. That's the ideal in this context. Then he uses the coupling together when he says, nor things present, nor things to come. Paul's speaking about time here. What's interesting, he just talks about present and future. He doesn't talk about past. Well, that's obvious because nothing in the past has separated him or anybody he knows, obviously, from the love of God. So he says nothing in the present nor in the future can do it. He knows that, and he knows that by conviction. He's persuaded of these things, remember? And nothing here or hereafter can separate us. And the reason is it's a sealed deal with God. God's already seal the deal with us then he goes in verse 39 and he says nor height nor depth that's interesting because he's moved from time into space and what he says there's nothing above us or there's nothing below us or there's nothing around us that can possibly separate us from the love of god nothing in time and nothing in space can separate the believer from the love of god absolutely zero then interesting, too, when you come to this, and you'll find this in, in um, different commentaries, which is interesting, and I give it to you for your own digestion, and you can take it or leave it. But in the context of that, it is true that the Greek words translated by height and depth were translated and used in the ancient world, as we call it, in astrology to point out and to mark a point directly overhead and a point directly beneath in the earth and the horizon and so forth, and what... what it was used for in the ancient world. Astrologists say it is used to to forecast people's futures. It was a sort of a horoscope of sorts, and they used it that way. Some believe that's why Paul used it here. If he did, and I'm not saying he did, but if he did use it here, what he is saying is there's no astrological powers that can be exerted upon the Christian to take him away from or separate him from the love of God. There's nothing in that world out there that can separate the believer. I don't care what comes down his way and what happens and what his future holds and, and how many bad signs he has. It's not going to change things for the Christian because his direction, his future, his plans are in the hands of God, not at the whims of some astrological power. That's what he would be saying. Then the last one that he adds is if it's a capstone for all of them, he says, nor any other creature or, in our words, any other creation. There is no creation, there is no creature that has, we maybe skipped or we've never mentioned before, there is nothing out there that can separate us from the love of God. And that's why he is convinced and that's why he's persuaded. Uh, somebody in a, a small note on a card had written that they had seen a, a, a weathercock on the top of a building. And what was obvious when they looked at it was they saw the words on it, the love of God. And somebody came along and made a comment, maybe a cynic, you know, you know what a cynic is? A cynic is a fellow who smells flowers and looks for a coffin. That's a cynic. When this guy looked up and saw this weathercock and he saw the words, the love of God on it, he made a comment. It was sort of a rude, crude kind of thing. He said, that can't be. Why? They, they, they insult that and it's not appropriate to put that on there because that thing shifts. And the other person said... No, what it's saying is, no matter which way the wind is blowing, no matter which way the wind is blowing, you can't separate the people who know the Lord from Him and His love. And I believe that's true. And I believe that's really what the bottom line is in this verse of Scripture, verse number 39, when Paul says that. Paul says, I am 
absolutely convinced, verse 38, that none of these things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I close with a simple question. Are you persuaded, as was Paul, that nothing can separate you from the love of God? Maybe I need to go before that and ask you this question. Are you persuaded in your heart that there's been a place, a time, when you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? And you remember that when God had convicted your heart of being separated, alienated from God. And you came to a point where you understood that you needed to believe on Jesus Christ. Someone either quoted to you Romans chapter 10 verse 9. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him Christ from the dead, thou shalt be saved. And you understood the Bible saying all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And someone pointed to the fact that you needed to believe on Christ personally. It wasn't done in a group and it wasn't done as a church. It was done individually. So the question is, has there been a time in your life when you personally came under the conviction that you were a sinner? And two, convicted and convinced that Christ and Christ alone was the only Savior for you. And thirdly, that you then and there called upon Him to save you. He came unto His own and His own received Him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Have you believed on him? Have you received him? Are you convinced of that? Let me say something to you who are convinced. This chapter ought to be precious to you, and you ought to relish in it. And you ought to share it with other people who may at times be in doubt and in question. Because some of these things will come to be. I, I can assure you that... Uh, Everybody in this room, barring our Lord's return, would face death. Everybody. I, I love the story that's in one of the books that Peter Marshall wrote. He tells the story under a section called The Rendezvous in Samara. Let me just read you a small section of it. He tells of a man who worked for a servant of a wealthy merchant. He'd gone into a town to shop one day, and when suddenly he felt someone brush up heavily against his shoulder. Somewhat offended, he turned rapidly toward the person who had jostled him, and found himself staring into the pair of eyes that spoke of death to him. Panicking, he dropped everything that he had purchased, and he ran home. His master saw him coming, breathless, toward the house, and met him at the front steps. "'What on earth is the matter?' asked the master. "'Oh, sir, someone in the marketplace rudely brushed me, and when I turned to face him, he looked like the angel of death to me.' He, too, had a look of shock on his face, and he was almost as if he wanted to grab me, but then he backed away, and I'm afraid, sir, I don't want to go back to the marketplace. The master said, Saddle one of our horses, ride all day till you reach the distant village of Samara. And he said, Stay there till you get word from me that it is safe for you to return to the house. The servant rode off, and the master made his way to the market to find this person who had so frightened his servant. He wound his way through the crowded streets and he suddenly came face to face with this strange looking individual. Who are you? The merchant said. Are you the one who just scared my servant? Yes, indeed. Why did you frighten him? Well, I was truly surprised to see him here. I am the angel of death. And I chose to spend the day here before heading to my stop for tonight. You see, it was not so much that I surprised him as it was that he surprised me. I didn't expect to see him here because I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. 
point made is that death is uh, no respect of persons or places. And the fact is that as Paul the Apostle alluded in the context of these verses we've read today, death is on the list of something that some people think can separate us from God's love. They think as long as you're here in this earth and in this life, everything is fine. But they're not so sure about when the lights go out. I'm here to tell you that when the lights go out, it just gets better for those who know the Lord. I remind you to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, not separated from Him, with Him. And right now, Holy Spirit is that which connects us and gives us a sense of His presence, but then face to face, as it were. And that only happens when we leave this world, this life. So the issue is, one, are you certainly sure, absolutely sure, persuaded sure, convicted sure, that Christ died on the cross for your sin and that you have believed on Him and Him alone for your salvation? Two, are you resting in that as a believer? Are you confident of that? And thirdly, if you haven't believed on Christ, would you be willing today to allow someone to take a Bible and show you for your own personal need how you can be absolutely sure Christ is yours? Let us bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this Romans 8. What a blessed chapter it has been, and what a joy it has been to review and to renew our own understanding of the chapter, to see the great security that this chapter holds for every believer. And today we rejoice in the truth of that, but we also realize there are folks here in this room who may not know Christ, and because of their not knowing him as personal Savior, they may not have the same persuasion, the conviction that many others who uh, know Christ have. And for them, we pray. We ask you, first of all, help them to be sure of their relationship with Christ. Help them to know for certain that they have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone to save them. And then, too, Father, I pray that you might help every person in this room to go from this place today in confidence of knowing that certainly we face death someday. And somewhere out there, we shall face it. But help us not to be afraid, even as the choir sang this morning. Help us not to be afraid. But help us to know that instead of separating us from you, it'll bring us together. And I pray that we'll rest in that, knowing that you do all things well, make no mistakes, and there are no emergencies with you. Help us to rest in those truths. I thank you again for those who are here. pray you'll speak to our hearts about our salvation, our relationship with you and that, our baptism, our church membership, and whatever other things you may have brought to mind that we may not have covered here and now. Deal with them, please, in our hearts as we wait upon you in this invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? 281, if you need a hymn book, just as I am. As we give an invitation around here, it's with the intent to help you. We want you to be fully persuaded of what truth we've shared. And if you're here this morning and you'd like to have someone talk with you about your relationship with Christ, you have questions about it and you want to deal with that, we want to help. If you do not know Christ and you know you do not know Christ, where you're standing, you could deal with it. You could simply call upon the Lord to save you. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. The Bible teaches that. The Bible teaches that there's only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son. I hear and now believe on Him, receive Him as my personal Savior. And God will save you if it's from an honest heart, a heart of conviction. He'll save you. That's not the issue. The issue is, will you believe Him to save you? Will you trust Him? The fact of the matter is, that's often where the difficulty comes. God has already done all the work. The work's already done. And when He speaks to our heart by His Spirit, He's bringing us to the realization of that truth, to embrace that truth. And that's what it takes, childlike faith, to embrace what God has said and said with authority.
So if you believe that, and this morning pray that prayer with a believing heart, God would save you where you stand. But if you wish to speak with someone, we'd be delighted to help you. We'd be honored to do so. But please don't leave here lost, without hope, and uncertain of your future. Decide that today. Let us sing together. 282, verse number 1, please. And sing. Just as I am without one plea. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? If God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? Thank you so very much for your attention and for your time. I'm grateful for it. Thank you for being with us this morning. May the Lord bless you. And do please plan now to be back with us at 6 o'clock this evening. Brother Mrs. McCallum will be here. And uh, we'll be looking forward to their presentation. And I hope you will likewise. And you can do that by being here in the service at 6. Choir practice at 5. Men's prayer time at 5.30. And I hope you'll be praying for the services. And do not forget, please, to be praying for Brother Brummett in the hospital at St. Francis Heart Hospital. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you again for this hour. Thank you for the opportunity we have to open your word, to study it in Sunday school and worship service. And as we'll come again to the evening service, we thank you for this day being set aside for this purpose. And I pray you'll give us insight to the scriptures and understanding of them. And then help us to practice them and go about our day's activities, bringing honor and glory to you. I pray you'll bless now all who are in attendance this morning. Help us, I pray, to be faithful to the evening service and gain and glean what we can about the work, the ministry of Brother Mrs. McCallum, and the work that they'll be doing in Ireland. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be prayer warriors of theirs, to assist them and encourage them in that, and if it please you, to be supportive of them in their work financially. So I pray you'll just bless and direct them and use the service tonight to be a great encouragement to all present. And again, we would pray for a member of our fellowship, pray for Brother Brummett, that you would touch him and heal him and raise him up, and do please get him back here to us very, very soon. Thank you again for this beautiful day. Help us to live it to your glory. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you until we meet again. You're dismissed.